We'll need our Bibles, so if you don't have one, you can raise your hand and we'll bring a Bible to you. Or if you use a device, just make sure the device is on silent uh, and, and go ahead and open the, the Bible app. We're going to be in one place in the Bible today. Most of these we've been kind of in various passages. We'll be hanging out in one. But to start off, we're going to read the portion of the creed that we've covered so far to date uh, in, in the sermon series. Um, and then in, that'll be in the green font. We'll read that together. And then the portion in the white font is what we'll cover today. And I'll read that to you as a way to kind of start us off this morning. So uh, would you stand one more time, if, if you would, and we'll read the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I'll read this to you. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and we'll pause there. The, the font colors got switched, so sorry about that. We'll keep you on your toes, though, right? All right, you may be seated. So it's, it's uh, fitting that the peace on the Holy Spirit kicks off the peace on the church. So the beginning portion of the creed uh, talks about the Father, Creator, Almighty, then it moves into the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it talks about the Holy Spirit and moves right into uh, essentially what the Father, Son, and Spirit have produced, which is the church. And now if you've uh, been to various kinds of churches or when you travel, you visit a church, uh, you've got family members that have invited you to different kinds of churches, uh, you can easily recognize churches are very, very different one from another. And some of that is great. Some of that is just cultural. Some of it is different traditions, and, and that's okay. Some of it is different mindsets. Some of it is based on confusion as to what a church is supposed to be. Many churches are, are uh, different in their bottom line. Their bottom line is to keep you awake, to keep you coming back. There's empty seats. How do we fill those seats? Well, it's not hard to fill seats if you give people what they want. If you start with what people want, if you start with what people desire, okay? And many churches start there, and at the end of the day, church is for the unreached. Church is for the unbeliever. Now, do we care about the unreached? Do we care about unbelievers? Yes. But one of the things we see striking in the creed is that the church is not a gathering of the unreached, but of holy people, of saints. To strike that, we're going to look at one book, not the whole book, we'll look at different places in the book, but I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 
And what strikes me about the, the letter to 1 Corinthians, I mean, it's not the only letter that Paul, Paul had to write this church numerous times. We have two of them. But it was a messed up church. As you read through the book, it's a messed up church filled with messed up people. And he calls them saints. He calls them holy. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 you see his greeting there. A greeting is something we sometimes blow by really quickly, but it's, I think, very core to what we see in the creed here. It's Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, that means made holy, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that means holy people, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a greeting. What an entrance to a book filled with problems and solutions that might be surprising. The problems are surprising. The solutions might be surprising. Shouldn't be. But this is nothing new. The things that they're dealing with in Corinth are the things that we'll deal with today, here, now. I want you to see what the creed has affirmed. It's taken from Scripture. That saints does not mean special people that posthumously are made into saints and then made into statues and that people that you can pray to, they're so specially powerful. But uh, have you ever considered that you are a saint? You're a saint. Because a saint is someone who's holy. And if you're in Christ, you're holy. The church is not a gathering uh, made up of holy people, but rather a gathering of people made holy. The difference is you're not holy because of what you did. You didn't make yourself holy. You're holy because you're made holy in Christ. You don't bring your own righteousness to the table. It's Christ's righteousness that clothes you. Now, if you are in Christ, and Christ's righteousness clothes you so that your sin account is put on Jesus' back, and Jesus' account, his perfect credit score, was given to you at judgment, there is no condemnation. Why? Because there's nothing to condemn in your life? No, there's lots to condemn in each of our lives. But the reason why there's no condemnation is because you're folded into Christ. You're given his righteousness, and if that's true, you're holy. And so the church is not a holy place, it's a holy people. Meaning a church can gather in the forest, underground, in a building with a steeple on it, in a house, because it's holy by virtue of our belonging to the family of Christ, not by virtue of the things that we've done. And then we are both holy now and being made holy. This is a theme throughout Scripture. You're something you have, but you don't have it yet. It's there, but it's not fully there yet. You're in it, but you're not, you haven't arrived yet. You're in the race, but you haven't hit the finish line yet. And Scripture uses this kind of language all the time, and we see it here. He says in verse 2, he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified. Now, when you read the book, you're like, they don't seem very sanctified. Yeah, they have a long, long way to go. And some of them, in fact, aren't sanctified. We'll see that in a minute. But he's writing to the believers and he says, you're sanctified. 
You are sanctified. Not one day, not hopefully, eventually. You're sanctified now. You're holy now. You've been made holy. But then look at what he says. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Right? You're called to be something. You're called to be a holy person. Right? Not just in the past, but in the present. And that's why this letter is necessary. You're still being sanctified. You're still being made holy. You're still pressing into this calling. And so we haven't arrived yet. We're, we have a status of holiness, but we're also growing in it. None of us is perfect. But we pursue and we progress in holiness. Holiness shouldn't make you feel like you're allergic, right? When you think about holiness, that shouldn't just make you think that's for legalistic churches. No, it's for churches that are concerned with loving God. So we should be talking about holiness. And we should stop thinking about saints as people that we can never be. You are one. Grow into it. So this is not Paul writing to some upper, upper echelon of people that are going to be turned into statues one day and, and prayed to one day. These are just your normal people. They don't even know how to take the Lord's Supper without being in anger toward one another. They, they, they don't even know uh, what sexual immorality is. <laughs> they, don't, they celebrate it. So he has a lot of rebuking to do, a lot of correcting to do. They're, they're disorderly there's people, they're speaking in tongues everywhere. There's no interpretation. Outsiders are confused. Who, what is going on? They need order. They need help. They need strength. But they're holy. Why? Because of what they are in Christ. Look how saturated it is with Christ's name. Paul, why is he called to be an apostle? Because he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's why. And he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. How are they sanctified? They're sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's how they're sanctified. And they're called to be saints. How are they ever saints because they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. And what makes Paul have anything to do with people in Corinth? Because the Lord is both theirs and ours. That's why. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's the, sword, he's the core. He's the center. And he's why anyone is a saint if you're in Christ. Now, you'll have noticed in the statement in the Creed, we affirm that we are a Catholic church. What in the world is up with that? We dropped the piece about Jesus descended to hell. Why don't we just drop that part? We're not Catholic. Catholic small c. Catholic small c. Now here's the, the decision that Protestants have to make. Do we let Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, kind of claim the word Catholic for themselves? Well, if you look up the word Catholic in the dictionary, it means Universal. I don't think we use this very much in common language. I think because we associate Catholics so much with uh, the church in Rome. But if somebody says uh, that someone else has very Catholic tastes in music, that means they like all kinds of music. Jazz, hip-hop, country. They have very Catholic tastes, a very universal taste as opposed to particular. Okay? That's what Catholic means. It means universal. And we believe in a universal church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will say, they are they. Are the. Universal church, and anyone who's not in that group is, is not in. Or we would say, no, there's a universal church and it's expressed differently. Some churches baptize babies, some churches don't baptize babies. Some churches uh, believe in a plurality of elders, some churches have one pastor, 
There's different expressions, but we're not saying everybody who doesn't do it the CFC way is going to hell. That's, that's not what we believe. We believe there are different denominations and different churches, but if they've got the gospel right and they've got some core orthodox doctrines right, they're part of a universal church that we are all a part of. That's the Catholic Church. And the reason why we don't remove that from the creed is because we have to state that the church is larger than these four walls, that the church is bigger than just this body. One of the things I appreciate about the men's retreat we've been doing in October, we'll have our third one this coming October, the first weekend this October. Please write it down, and ladies, get your, guy, get your uh, husband to go there, please. Is that we gather with other churches a joint retreat, and I think it's a special blessing to gather with other churches so that we're not just always by ourselves together, but recognize there are other gospel-preaching, Christ-centered churches near us that we can praise God for and praise God about. When I get together with the Five Stone Pastors at the Rock Conference, which happens in June, another time of encouragement that there are other churches doing good things. This isn't, this isn't just us. And so we recognize that there's a universal church, and the word Catholic just means universal, as opposed to a local church. A local church is a local expression of that universal body. It's a local gathering of saints that are in communion with each other so that we don't get to just say, well, I'm part of the universal church. It doesn't matter where I go locally. Yes, it does. Because you can say you're part of a universal church, but if you're not gathering together with church, the part of the creed that you're denying in your life is the communion of saints. You're not communing with the church in Russia. You don't know them. They don't know you. You don't confess your sins to them. You don't practice one another's with them. You don't share your gifts with them. Well, who do you share it with? See, that, that's the local part. And we see both of it here in these opening verses. If you look at verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So there's a church of God. You can interpret that as universal. I think the opening verses in Ephesians makes that clear. He's talking about the church universal. But then he locates it in Corinth. There's a, church, there's a meeting of it. There's a gathering within that universal body. There's a specific gathering in Corinth. So those sanctified in Jesus Christ call to be saints together. Well, together in one place in Corinth, yes, but also together with who? Everyone else who calls upon the name of the Lord. There's the universal church. And a saint belongs to both. You can't separate them. If you're part of the universal church, the next question should be, what local church are you a part of? And the fact that you attend a local church doesn't mean you're part of the universal church because you could just be an attender and not a believer. The two need to go hand in hand. If you're a member of the universal church, you should be a committed saint in communion together with a local gathering of believers where you're in communion together. And one of the points I want to strike home today is that if you're in communion with other believers, you can't go to a different local body every Sunday. You kind of pop in, pop out, you're here, you're over there, and there's no commitment. That's not communion. That's a very unbiblical notion of what communion means, and we'll unpack that a little bit. But there's a commitment to a local gathering. It's interesting that when you read these New Testament looks, he's like, books... The church that is in Corinth, which one? The one. <laughs> is none of this First Baptist of Corinth, 
Second Presbyterian of Corinth, the, the Warehouse Church in Corinth, the Seeker-Sensitive One in Corinth, the traditional stained-glass version. If you're a believer in Corinth, guess what church you're going to? The one where you're not sure if you're even going to get communion because they're pushing each other out of the way trying to grab the food. That one. The divided one, the racist one, the one that Paul has to keep, ugh, write another letter. That's your church. But I want one that starts a little earlier. I want one that protects my lunchtime. The church in Corinth. Imagine that. Where you have no choice but to completely kill the consumeristic bent that we have toward Christianity. Where we go to the comfortable church, the church that has our needs, the church that has what we want. And we have the privilege to click through 50 different websites before we pick the one that we even want to visit. Now, that is a discipline you should practice because there are a lot of churches you shouldn't be a part of. That's true. But we need to pull away from the, I need to go to a church that checks all my boxes and move more toward, if I'm living in this area, what is a gospel-centered, Christ-exalting church that is in this area? So that we're not just claiming to be a part of the universal body, but we show it by committing to a local body. One more thing to unpack in terms of the word communion, just by virtue of clarification. Oftentimes the Lord's Supper is referred to as communion. Right? Oh, we had communion today. When is communion? Oh, that's next week. Um, and that's not quite what the creed means by communion. The word communion is used of the Lord's Supper because of chapter 10, 16. Can you look at that really quickly? Same book, chapter 10. This is just a teaching moment to help us as we move forward so that we don't get confused when we recite the creed together. Paul is talking about um, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There's one bread. We who are one body, we all partake of the one bread. So, He's talking about their unity together. Now, it's harder for us to see when we pass that plate around and it's a bunch of broken little pieces. The symbol there is one piece of bread that's broken into pe- The body of Christ was shattered and broken for us. And I don't know, may, I'll talk with the elders. Maybe it would be interesting if sometimes we can just start with one big piece of bread and just break it and give it to you. Break it and give it to you. So you can see the symbol that we are all one body. The oneness that Paul is arguing for there means Christ has one body. He doesn't have multiple bodies. So there's a unity that he's arguing for there. But the word that he uses is we participate in the blood of Christ. We participate in the body of Christ. And that word participation is koinonia, which in other places is translated fellowship. It means fellowship. It means sharing. It means communion. Right? Communion, when we have the Lord's Supper, means we're communing with the Lord that we're part of his body, and we're communing with each other because we're all part of the body, right? So communion just means fellowship. It means sharing. And when we read the creed, it talks about the communion of the saints, meaning you can't be a Christian by yourself. If you're a saint, you're a Christian in communion with other saints. That's what it means. You can't read the creed at home by yourself as a habit. I mean, you can read the creed on your own. But you can't stand there and go, I don't need the church. I believe in the communion of saints. Well, no, you don't. 
So it's the togetherness that Paul is emphasizing in 1 Corinthians over and over. It's the togetherness of the saints that the creed is seeking to emphasize. Here's the main thing I want us to take away, what I think the creed is emphasizing. Saints who are members of the church, capital C, the universal church, saints who are members of the universal church are also committed to a local church, small c. Saints who are members of the church, big C, are committed to the fellowship, the communion, the togetherness of the church, small c. That's what the creed is affirming. And here's just a few ways. Here's a few ways that saints who supposedly are part of the universal church press into the fellowship of the local church, and we're just going to stay in 1 Corinthians to see it. And the first thing is that saints who are committed to the fellowship of the local church are centered on Christ. That sounds very Christianese. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, you know, yeah, Christ-centered. But, but think about this. How often we are tempted to make church about ourselves instead of centered on Christ. And what Paul is doing in this letter is he's pushing them to center themselves on Christ. If he has one solution that solves all these problems, their problems with taking communion, their problems with divisions in the church, their problems with sexual immorality, their problems with uncontrolled use of, of gifts, is to center them on Christ. You see it in the opening verses again, chapter 1, verse 1, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, they're sanctified in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, again, what is a church? Essentially, it's a gathering of people who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a church does. We gather, we call upon Christ. Verse 3, any grace and peace that the Father affords to you, it's afforded to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you see in verse 6 to 8, Paul talks about the testimony about Christ that was confirmed among you. That's what we're gathered around. This, this, we are witnesses of what, who Christ is, what he's done. So that, he says, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we waiting for? What are we hoping for? What are we longing for? The coming of Jesus Christ. That, that is our hope. God is faithful, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. That's what makes us a fellowship. It's not that we have the same hobbies. It's not that we love the same music. This, this church is not a dating app. We should be very different from one another in many different ways, but we're, we're one for one reason. We all share the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. So we try to strike that tone, don't we? We don't have the men's fisher, fishing group and then the women's knitting crochet group. What do you like to do? We have a group for you. Do you love Jesus? There's your group. What time are you available? Because our unison is not the favorite things that we like of this world. It's what we're hoping for. And that's Jesus Christ coming again. See it in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul is talking about his preaching. When he came to them, he didn't come proclaiming 
the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He didn't want to talk about anything else. He didn't want to preach about anything else. And if you read the book of Acts, how long was he in Corinth? 18 months. And he didn't talk about anything but Jesus Christ? Yeah, because what else is there to talk about? You might say, no, I, I get that. I, I, I like to learn about Jesus, but I also need a, a, you know, 10 steps for a happy this and, and five pieces of advice for that. Go download some TED Talks. That's not what church is about. Your help, your grace, your peace is centered in Jesus Christ. So that the posture of the Christian, the saint that gathers together with other saints, is not to come to church asking, what is in this for me? What can I get out of this? The posture of the saint is, what is Christ going to get out of me today? That's a radically different posture to attend church. What, what is God going to get out of me today? What is Christ? How is Christ going to be exalted in me today? That, that's very different. We should critique the sermons and critique the songs and think about how we can do church better, but we should do it based on what exalts Christ better, not what makes me comfortable. It's just a radically different starting point. And this is what Paul is pressing them toward, this Christ-centeredness. I want our church to be known for a love for Christ more than it's known for its preaching. And if it's appreciated for its preaching, I hope it's because the preaching is Christ-centered. Not because, look, there's no you know, pulpit. Oh, wow, how does he do that? I've got notes. I just write really small. You know, there's it, nothing special. But my hope is that people come to CFC and leave going, man, that's a people that follow Christ. That's, that's a people that are centered on Christ. You know, they're, they're not going to cut a CD album. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of bells and whistles, but, but they, they are centered on their Lord. They love Him. And because of that, their behavior is different. That's a different kind of church. And I hope that is the number one thing that people see at Christian Fellowship Church. You see these people in Corinth, they're clinging to the church superstars. I follow this guy, I follow that guy. They all had their different t-shirts and their favorite authors, their favorite speakers. And it's easy for us to fall into that if we're not careful. CFC is not the Lucas Church. My hope and my prayer is that when I'm sick or I'm on vacation, the sabbatical coming up in the summer, lots of preachers that are not me, do they exalt Christ? Amen that. Don't lament the fact that Lucas isn't preaching. Embrace the fact that someone else is proclaiming Christ from up here. And if they don't, let me know. <laughs> saints are committed to a local fellowship that is centered on Christ. And if saints are committed to a local church that is centered on Christ, then saints will be serious about unity. About unity in the church. See, the way to get to the way the Bible describes unity is to start with what exalts Christ and not what puts me at the center. If we can start there, then that bleeds into unity. That affords unity. If you were to read through 1 Corinthians, you can turn to these if you want. I'm not going to read them. You see Paul addressing the divisions in the church in chapter 3. Why? Because their main problem was 
They were factious. They were um, trying to build the church on the backs of their favorite preachers. They, were, um, they, they saw themselves as different groups, different cliques. I'm this kind of people, I'm that kind of people, and he immediately tries to bust that up. You've got a church in chapter 6 that are suing one another. Hey, that's not right. I'm taking you to court. And he's saying, why do you, why do you, why do you need the world's judges to solve stuff in-house? Why can't you figure it out in-house? If you're centered on Christ and Christ is your Lord, you should be able to forgive one another without being litigious about it. You see, in chapter 6 and 7, they're very confused about sex and marriage, and so there's no unity in the household. There's no unity in the marriages, and if there's no unity in the marriages, how are you going to have unity in the church? That's why elders are supposed to have the house in order before they can lead the church, because as the houses go, so goes the church. So he's pressing unity into the marriage, into the household, into the family. In chapters 8 and 9, he talks about not being a stumbling block to one another. This person is quite offended if you were to smoke a cigar. You feel like you have every right to smoke a cigar. Okay, well do that in privacy and don't puff it in front of your friend who has a problem with it. Why? Because you're supposed to care about what your brother thinks and how they're handling things, how they're interpreting things. You're supposed to try to accommodate their growth in the Lord, even if you think you're right. And so as you unpack those chapters, he talks about that reality where you don't get to just flaunt your freedom in Christ in front of people. You have to think about these things in terms of how it affects other people around you because you're a communion of saints. You're not a lone ranger. You read in chapters 11 through 14, a big section on orderly worship. You don't get to just do church however you want. You don't get to just use the excuse of the Spirit moving you to just get up and say whatever you want, do whatever you want, sing whatever you want, do church in any old order you want. If it gets to a point where it's confusing, confusing people walk in, they don't know what's going on, that's messed up. <laughs> there, there should be some order. And some churches would wear disorderliness as a badge of the Spirit's moving. And what I'm saying is the Spirit has already inspired something objective for us to follow. Let's follow that. If we're going to be in step with the Spirit, let's be in step with what the Word says about church first. That doesn't mean everything has to be robotic. That doesn't mean there isn't room for uh, variation and things like that. But there is not room for disorderliness Disorderliness is a result of people doing whatever they want to do instead of people doing what's best for the group. Unity. Unity. So, you move into chapter 16. He concludes the book with financial support for the saints, people that are giving sacrificially uh, so that saints can do the work of ministry. Again, unity around the giving Unity around how we use our funds, our resources, so that the church can do what it's supposed to be doing, so that ministers can be doing what they're supposed to be doing. So that if we're Christ-centered, we're not asking mainly, what do I get out of church, but rather, what does the church get out of me? Not just Christ, but the people around me. What are they getting out of me? You don't go, you know, I would go to that group, I'd go to that ministry, I'd go to that thing, if I thought I got more out of it. Ask yourself, if I go to that thing, what are others getting out of me? 
Can I bring value to that growth group, that meeting, that ministry? Can I bring value to that church, that service, that congregation? Asking that first, rather than starting with, I don't know, I'm, I'm, not, really getting, I'm not really getting much out of that. So we want to press into connecting with other people. If there are people, look, how, look, look at the size of this church. And there are people that you still don't know. Communicate, shake a hand, say hi. It's not, it's not 4,000 people up in here. Right? You don't get to just be comfortable with your three or four favorite people. It's a communion of saints, not a communion of my favorite friends. You can be your best friends. Everyone doesn't have to be your best buddy. Everyone doesn't have to be your favorite friend. We're allowed to have people that we connect more with than other people. That's very natural, and that's good. There's such thing as friendships and close friendships, bonds that aren't the same as bonds with other people. But this is your church family. Imagine having a brother that you didn't know. I, I don't know him. My, my mom had so many kids, <laughs> I couldn't keep up. After number five, I'm just like, I don't know who that is. Frank, I don't remember his name. That's weird, right? Take someone to lunch. Ask someone to coffee. And press into the togetherness and the unity that, that defines us, makes us what we are. It's not gathering and sitting to listen to a sermon. It's the communion, the fellowship of the saints together. If we're saints that are gathered together and are centered on Christ and because of our centrality, our centeredness on Christ produces a unity, then that unity will be protected. That Christ-centered unity will be protected through church discipline. And there's another something that we're allergic to, American churches especially today. Church discipline that, that action of the church to make it known who's in and who's out. The fellowship of the church is protected by defining the repentant saints that make up the saints that are together. That has definition. That definition can't be, uh, as soon as the doors close, let's take a head count, everybody's a saint. No, that's not membership. That's attendance. Attendance and membership is different. And so fellowship is protected by defining an inness and an outness. Where do I get that from? Well, different places, but we have chapter 5 right here. Where they have somebody who's in sin. Now, who isn't in sin? Okay, But this is someone embroiled in a sin that isn't repenting about it. It's a, it's a sin of sexual immorality that even would make pagans blush because a man has his father's wife right there in verse 1. And how does the church feel about it? How does he feel about it? How do people think about it in this church? They're arrogant. They're, they don't have the humility to see that there's something wrong here. And he says, ought you not rather to mourn in verse 2? Shouldn't you be mourning this? What should you do if you were mourning this? If somebody is unrepentant, arrogant about their sin, but claims to be a brother, what is a church supposed to do? They're supposed to remove that person from the fellowship. Now, is that exciting? Is that, is that, did I graduate seminary? Like, yes! I can't wait. Who's going to be the first person I kick out of church? <laughs> I hate it! It's heartbreaking. And it's difficult work. I think one of the qualifications to be an elder is, can you correct to the point of protecting the fellowship of the church? Or are you kind of a soft-spined person? Like, well, I don't know. We're all sinners. 
If you can't call someone to repentance, you can't be an elder because elders are supposed to protect the flock. Draw that line and say, anyone can attend. Anyone can sit there and listen to the sermon. That's great. Fill out a connection card. Tell us how we can pray for you. Tell us what you're interested in. We can help you. We can recommend books. We want to explain the faith to you. We want to explain the gospel to you. But sitting in a brown chair doesn't make you a part of the fellowship. And there are some people sometimes that are part of the fellowship where the church has to go, man, you're not though. Not because, ha, we caught you in a sin. That's not it. It's, hey, brother, hey, sister, there's this issue. No, there isn't. And there's an arrogant flippantness about the sin and an unwillingness to repent. That means you're not in. And the church cannot extend the hand of fellowship to somebody. That doesn't mean you can't say a hi. If you see the person target, awkwardly run into another aisle. That's, That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the communion of saints. Confusing people out there by telling them because they signed a piece of paper, they're in a membership of the church, that you're, you're in heaven, brother. I know you're cheating on your wife right now. I know you're sleeping around with three different women. I know you've abandoned your kids and you could care less. You actually think it's pretty cool. You want to see how many other mistresses you can accumulate. You think it's really cool. But, you know, maybe in heaven you'll finally shed those things. He's not going to heaven. Because a Christian repents. It's not about being perfect. It's recognizing we need Christ's perfection. You don't get to claim Christ's perfection if you just like don't care about what Christ cares about. So the church identifies the fellowship not by doing a head count on a Sunday morning. The church identifies the fellowship by understanding, yes, there's people that say they're Christian and go to church, but are they really Christian? And the the primary mark of the Christian is a, a, an attitude of repentance rather than arrogance, a humility that says, no, I, I need God's grace in my life. And if people come around me and say, look at the Bible that says you shouldn't be doing this, but I go, man, I, I repent, I confess, I need help with that. Not, don't show me that, don't show me the Bible. Don't, don't talk to me about that. That's exactly not the attitude of a believer. And you'll see the effects of not doing church discipline. It starts hurting the body. Verse 6, the people are happy about it. They're boasting about it. Maybe not all of them, but enough of them for Paul to write in verse 6. You're, you're boasting about it, and that's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, you can't just put a sinning person in the fellowship in the corner and be like, yeah, that's just, that's just, Tom, he's always been like that. What are you going to do? You know? But, you know, that's just him. The rest of us aren't like that. If you tolerate it, it's affecting you. So he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what you're supposed to do, verse 7, is cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are, really are unleavened. In other words, you're identifying the true unleavened peace. And those who bring that leaven to it, you're, you're putting them out because you're describing the church as the unleavened body of God. A symbol of sinlessness, right? This is why we use flat, crunchy bread instead of like wonder bread. Okay? I'm not saying it's wrong for a church to use bread with yeast in it, but it does kind of hurt the symbolism that Paul is going for. That it's a, it's a bread without leaven. It's a perfect bread that is sinless on our behalf. So it's not just convenient because it's crackers and maybe a longer shelf life or something, I don't know. But rather, to symbolize what Paul is talking about here, protecting 
that clean loaf. Not clean because the people that are a part of the body don't sin, but clean because we're constantly taking that to God. That's the Lord's Prayer. You don't just confess one time, the Lord cleanses you of all unrighteousness, and then you never sin again. But Jesus taught it as a rhythm of our prayer life, to ask the Lord to forgive us of our debts toward him, right? Regularly, because we, we're not perfect. But if we're in Christ, we care about sin. And when sin is pointed out, we don't boast about it. We repent and we mourn sin. This is not about vindictiveness, getting angry. We don't wake up in the morning hoping that our next members meeting we get to eliminate some people. It's getting too big. That's not the intent. The intent is, what kind of body do we have here? Come on, come all. We don't care what you do. That's actually not loving people. But hey, come on in. We have have expectations. There's one big expectation. Are you ready for it? Repent. Not one time. Live a life in a penitent posture toward the Lord. So that when things are called out, you go, yes, I need to change on that. And we can come alongside and help. I don't want any of you to think that if you're sitting around in a growth group and you're sharing and you confess a sin, that you're suddenly going to be booted. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, if you're confessing it in a repentant attitude, that that's it. That's what we're aiming for. We want everyone around the table to do that. We all do it. Some of us just are not comfortable yet. Okay. But if we can get our meetings together to the point where we can actually share, like, man, I failed this week with this, then we can come alongside and support and help. That's the posture. It's not to, to boot people. In fact, what Paul tell, uh, tells the church here, in verse 5, if you see it there, here you've got this scoundrel ruining his family, ruining the church. And why does Paul want him booted? Look at verse 5. You're to deliver this man to Satan. In other words, he's not a child of God. He's a child of Satan. You remember when Jesus made that distinction? You've got people that are children of of God and there's people that are children of the Father. He's a liar. And he says, you're to deliver this man over Satan. In other words, make this man, make it clear to everybody, you are not in the fellowship. You are not a saint. You are still evil. Why? For the destruction of the flesh spiritually speaking, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now look at that. Paul actually wants to save this guy. He wants him to be saved, and he's realizing the, the, the strategy of not bringing this up is condemning him to hell. That actually is not loving the guy. But if you really love people, you'll make it clear to them that repentance is the only posture for the believer to be a saint. So, if we're a church that is part of the Catholic universal church, that means we're committed to a local expression, communion, togetherness of that body. And we do that by centering on Christ. That Christ-centeredness produces a unity that is different than any kind of unity you'd see outside of the church, and that unity is protected by our being serious about holiness, our being serious about drawing lines around that fellowship. Because there are insiders and there are outsiders in any gathering in the church. He makes that clear in this book. Chapter 14, verse 23, he says there's outsiders present. 
So it's not that if you have to be a member of the church to show up to a service, but rather, as an outsider, we want you to observe what being in looks like. We want to present that as something beautiful, this unity that you can be a part of if you give your life to Jesus Christ and allow Him to clothe you in His holiness. We want to understand church as a place that is holy, not because the place is holy, but because the people are people that are made holy and being made holy. That means weighty. It's a weighty and glorious thing for us to gather together. And I'll just tell you right now, if there's some Saturday nights, some Sunday mornings, early Sunday mornings, and you're not quite feeling it, I get it. That's me sometimes. That's me sometimes. Not because I don't like CFC, it's just I, I get it. And, you know, it's, we go through seasons, things are tough, but our bottom line commitment is not we go to some place when we're feeling it, we go to a place rather because we're here to exalt Christ together, the discouraged with the encouraged, people that are in a valley, people that are on a mountaintop, and we do it together, regardless of what we've been facing this week, this month, this year. We're a holy gathering. It's a weighty and glorious thing that we don't want to skip, we don't want to take lightly, and we want to display this glory and this beauty of Christ to the outsiders that gather with us on Sundays. And I think this takes a weekly daily effort to keep moving that vehicle of commitment out of the self-serving lane and into a lane where Christ is the center. That takes work. That takes work. If a church was so exciting, so fun, that you never had to intentionally make the effort to commit to it, there might be something wrong with the church. Church is tough. Families are tough. You ever go to a Thanksgiving and you're like, ah, oh, I really want to see this person, but this person just, sometimes it just traps me in a conversation and my food gets cold. And, but you go anyway. Why? Because it's family. And it's not about food being perfect. Right? Same, same thing with church. That's okay if it takes effort. It's okay if sometimes you pull up and you have to take a breather once in a while. You know, like, okay, I'm going to talk to people. That, that's okay. But the commitment is this is going to glorify Christ. This is going to edify others. I'll be edified in ways that I, I wasn't maybe expecting. And that we leave this holy huddle ready to approach the field and move the ball up the yard line. I don't want to go too far with that before I betray my lack of football knowledge. <laughs> I'm, I'm privileged. I'm privileged to have a church full of saints that understand these things. If you're here this morning, you're still on the outside, we don't disdain you. We love you. And we want you to come on board, not because we have some role and we're trying to show off with other churches, look at our membership role. It has nothing to do with that, but everything to do with helping you understand what it takes to be in the, sh the flock of sheep and come out from the flock of goats because Jesus will make the perfect separation in the end. And you want to understand that separation now, not then. And we want to invite you to that. It doesn't take works. It takes repentance. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for the beauty of church. People from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different stories, 
different age groups, ethnic backgrounds, cultures, traditions, and you gather us in one place to worship you, to be in holy communion with each other. And we pray that we would continue to grow in what that means. And we would find new and fresh ways to express our love toward one another. And we would find uh, a fresh sort of wind in our sails to, to demonstrate to the church that we love the body by how we serve it, how we show up to give and not just receive. But we're thankful that you've blessed this church with so many gifts so many talents and resources, spiritual gifts, that any given Sunday we can show up and be blessed by the ministry of others. Father, finally, we're thankful for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who makes all of that possible. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, adopting us, not on the merits of our adoptableness, but because of grace and mercy. We pray that we wouldn't spurn that mercy, we wouldn't trample that grace, by cheapening it or being flippant toward it, that we'd care about sin and that we'd care about holiness and that we'd grow in our love toward you and toward one another as we hold each other to the things that we know are true and to what you describe as expectations of your holy bride. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.